0: malicious mutts i'm david b
1: jacobs and i'm devin shepherd
0: and we are cadaver dogs minus rob pesercia who i i think he's in jersey
1: right now jersey he might have a wedding he's he's doing something that's not being here with us today
0: belated mother's day maybe mother's day is an ironic uh thing for this episode (laughs) dark So the good news is, you you know how often I sound like I'm underwater? We think we've solved that.
1: We, we think. We it. we solved it. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> We're doing a lot sure. Of tech stuff for like three people it... <laughs> who aren't technically working on the tech side of things to figure out how to do <laughs> microphone <laughs> and pod work, yeah. it's amazing.
0: At the end of last episode, Rob casually said like, oh, David, have you tried turning your microphone around? And I'm just like what he's like yeah like are you talking to the front of it or the back of it and i'm like there's a front and back (laughs) so So hopefully we'll
1: sound better this time (laughs) hopefully the good news is you sounded great in the bone reviews of the last episode really fantastic david (laughs) (laughs) so david how are you doing
0: (laughs) so I'm doing amazing, Devin. I am alive, which almost wasn't the case. <laughs> so I'm okay. Don't freak out much, but I, I did almost die two days before this recording. Um, I was at a party and I had peanuts that were in food that was catered that I I, I didn't think there would be peanuts in that I, I was I was so excited to learn it was vegetarian I didn't think to ask about the other thing and then I went into anaphylactic shock so I just pulled a friend and I had an EpiPen and I went to the hospital they put IVs in me uh they they gave me a nebulizer they they gave me uh intravenous medicine things steroids Benadryl everything it was it was it was a lot. Uh, they gave me a second EpiPen because mine had actually been expired. Oops. Uh-
1: <laughs> so David's
0: alive. <laughs> so that was an adventure, but I made it. I'm very much alive, and I'm I'm very happy to be alive right now.
1: <laughs> How does it feel to have this uh, renewed sense of life and appreciation? I'm gonna I'm not gonna put words in your mouth, but do you have an appreciation for this? Uh, for this life. <laughs> After almost dying?
0: I mean, yeah. Most of yesterday, I was just listening on loop to the song from next to normal, I'm Alive. Oh my god, wait, were you really? Ironic, yeah. If, <laughs> if you know the context of that song, it actually makes no fucking sense that I'm listening to that one. But
1: Well, I'm glad that you're alive and that you are not covered in hives. You look great.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I'm told that I wasn't swelling too much, but I turned really, really, really red. I kind of wish someone had taken a picture of me, but no one did because they were too focused on making me not die. Yeah.
1: So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was mostly concerned in the moment about like not ruining the party.
1: That's such a thing.
0: <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to ruin everyone's night, <laughs> oh my god, just because I might die in a few minutes.
1: So polite, so polite, David.
0: (laughs) Excuse me. Gotta have your priorities straight. (laughs) I did leave my sweatshirt at the
1: restaurant. Oh, maybe we're gonna have to make cadaver Dog sweatshirts. I would wear that. Yeah. Yeah. We should do a cadaver dogs hoodie. Oh, and I don't mean to take your uh, life-threatening moment to like advertise our podcast, but (laughs) (laughs) the t-shirts, we are still selling t-shirts on Etsy. Woo! We're gonna have the post- in our um, just go to our socials it'll be it'll be there in the links but I updated the photos so that they actually look better I swear to god these shirts are not like horrible (laughs) they're really comfy we really love our shirts I literally wear mine like all the time I love that shirt (laughs) but the photos looked awful so I updated the ones on on Etsy so hopefully they look cooler now (laughs) anyway that's me taking your life-threatening moment and turning it into an advertisement for our our (laughs) t-shirts
0: I appreciate that yeah, I also welcome. want people to buy our t-shirts if if no other good comes out of my my nearly dying then we sell a bunch of t-shirts then it, it was worth it
1: <laughs> <laughs> well something else that's going to come out of you uh not nearly dying is us talking about the films that we have today which is actually about dying so young which is well that's that's kind of sad I'm sorry was that a dark transition there <laughs> There's
0: no escape in the dark transitions this week guys. <laughs> we're 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 going to get into some heavy topics. Our heavier topics will be in our second film though.
1: Yeah, definitely. I might have to take a real
0: Oof. Yeah, just be aware there's going to be some heavy topics about school shooters and self-harm is self-harm a theme?
1: Yeah, I think self-harm and definitely some some depression and lots of violent stuff in here. Yeah, You know, the typical shit that we talk about every single podcast, just (laughs) all the content warnings. And with that, let's go into our first film, shall we?
0: What do you think of when you think of a nerd? A poindexter with glasses, a shy kid with stuck-up parents, an instinctive fear of all the bigger kids who steal his lunch at knife point, a reluctance to talk to women? Arnie Cunningham is all of these things the perfect nerd. Except... He's in love with Christine. A 1958 Plymouth Fury hard top painted in bright blood red. Arnie buys Christine on a whim, very much in spite of protests from his friend Dennis who insists she's a piece of shit car. Everyone tells Arnie she's a piece of shit. His parents won't let him park her at the house. Mr. Darnell at the auto shop thinks he's crazy for trying to fix her up. But fix her up Arnie does, and soon Christine is looking sleek as ever. He doesn't wear glasses anymore. His hair is greased dating the hottest girl in school, Lee who has no further character development. Of course, Lee is still a bit concerned. She's afraid that Christine is jealous and wants to kill her. Things take a turn when the local bullies break into Darnell's and trash Christine. They break her windows, dent and puncture her frame, even defecate on the dashboard. But fixing her up this time is easier than it seems, for Christine is finally ready to show Arnie her power she can heal all on her own. A self-repairing, self-driving car where the mileage goes down instead of up. Now Christine starts picking off Arnie's bullies one by one. As the body count rises, cops become suspicious. Even old Darnell himself joins the body count, which sucks as he's the best character. Now only Dennis and Lee have a chance at bringing Arnie back to Earth, at grounding him in something other than this obsession with his car. They prepare for a showdown, bringing an excavator truck to level the playing field. The shrapnel flies and Christine crashes into a window. Arnie himself flies out. The presumed self-driving car had a driver all along. Now impaled by a glass shard, his dying moments resting on his beloved's hood. They finish the job, crushing Christine beyond repair. Or at least, that's what they hope. This is it's just called Christine. I know it's a really unexpected title. From 1983, directed by John Carpenter with a screenplay by Bill Phillips based on the novel of the same name by Stephen King. John Carpenter and Stephen King, motherfucker.
1: Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> I know we were talking about when we were coming up with this episode how Stephen King now I think has appeared in the pod we said five times.
0: I think we said this, this is his fifth. There could be one we looked over though. We did Pet Cemetery, Dead Zone, Night Flyer, Carrie, and now Christine. Yeah,
1: so this is the fifth. Yeah, I think him and John Carpenter.
0: Yeah, this is our third John Carpenter.
1: Yeah, so they're they're the most covered filmmakers, uh, I think, that we've been uh, that we've covered so far.
0: Yeah, I don't think any other director has more than two. There are several directors with two, but I don't think any other directors sit three.
1: Yeah, spread out a little bit. We should get some some other really good ones in here. But focusing on the on the film at hand, I'm just going to start us off with the overall basic question, which is, what do you think Christine the car represents in this film?
0: Totally. I mean, it's a big deal that the car is from the 1950s, and like like yeah. plays all this 50s rock on it, all the old school rock and roll. You got your your buddy, Holly, who's a theme this episode. You've got your Elvis Presley shows up, uh, Chuck Berry. They're all just coming in and out of the radio kind of at whim. It's kind of up to Christine to set
1: the music. Oh, I love that. She always picks the best songs. I don't know how that works, how she can just like tap into, I guess, radio frequency somewhere always played the same song, but <laughs> it's interesting. Anyway, continue. yeah.
0: And even when you look at Arnie's glow up, he reads to me like he's turning into like James Dean or something that he feels like he's out of the 50s or 60s as he as he gets more uh, hot, so to speak.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, you did mention in your summary that he greases his hair. And I mean, this film yeah. takes place in nineteen seventy seventy eight, seventy six, 76, something like that. I did find it interesting that like, oh, I didn't realize that that was like a style then. But yeah, I think you're right. Maybe it was just a throwback to the 50s there.
0: Yeah, I think it was a throwback to the 50s. It's weird because in some ways it represents his coolness, but also like Lee never actually likes the car. I mean, some of this I think is just like maybe sloppy writing. Like she, she, She says, oh, he doesn't feel like Arnie anymore. And I'm like, you you never knew him before he had right? this car. <laughs> like what what how do you know that? How do you know what he's really like?
1: <laughs> the only person who knows what he's really like is Dennis.
0: Yeah. But I, I mean th- we can ask if that is what he's really like. But we'll, we'll we'll get into that later. The car I think also talks a lot about that sense of nostalgia. I think it is a sense of danger of nostalgia. I understand Stephen King had his own interpretation, which John Carpenter kind of refutes. Did did you get a chance to look into that?
1: Uh, Not as much, no. Well,
0: just what I saw was, I'm not going to be quoting this exactly, but Stephen King has talked about growing up in the 1950s, and he has basically said he has no bad memories of that time. And uh, we don't want to get too much into the adaptation because neither of us have read the book. But I understand that in the book version of it, it is more clear that Christine is the the previous owner, LeBay, b- basically used sacrifices and whatnot to imbue the car with powers. And it's his spirit, I think, that's haunting it or is possessing Arnie or something like that. I don't know. In I the, haven't book. Heard the book. In the
1: book. Okay.
0: The movie contradicts that because the very first scene of the movie is christine on the manufacturing line already uh being a dick and uh slamming her hood (laughs) on some dude's arms and then uh choking a black guy because this is one of the movies where the black guy dies first
1: oh my god it's true i didn't even realize that wow and he's the only black character in the movie
0: (laughs) yeah that trope is usually a little bit misquoted it's it's really just that the black guy dies but in this one, the black guy actually dies first. Yeah.
1: So, okay. They went through such lengths to make sure it was the same car that King described in his book, which I found fascinating mm. because apparently the, the car that King described in the book did not fully exist. Like, he described it as, like, a four-door kind of car. The car that he described actually never came in red, but they, like... And there's only like 3,000 of them that were ever made, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they went through great, great lengths to make sure that the car remained the same as the book, which says, which to me says like so much of like, it is really important that this car is this quote, cool mobile from the fifties. Like it needed to have that vibe. Um, And when I hear you talking about Stephen King, uh, seeing the car as kind of like this nostalgia for his childhood or him growing up in the fifties. It's not something that I really got from the movie as much like, yeah, Arnie does dress like the 50s a little bit, but nowhere else in the film do they really talk about this, this nostalgia and never does um, Arnie say like, you know, I'm, I, I'm dying to like be in the past or I'm from another time or like there's nothing else to hint at this, this nostalgia for the 50s other than the car itself.
0: Yeah, I think, if anything, the movie is a critique of that nostalgia. It's saying the 50s were not actually an innocent time. This car was always evil. It's not possessed. It's it's just a, a mean car.
1: Uh-oh, are we going to talk about Reagan now? We can. <laughs> it's funny you describe
0: the car as cool because it's actually, even in its time, this was not a popular car. It was always kind of seen as like a shitty model.
1: Yeah, they, and they call it shitty in the movie the bullies are like oh that shitty car
0: but not just because it's an old car from another time but also just because it it wasn't even popular then it was like king didn't want the car to be anything too special or flashy (laughs) it's flashy because it's red but you know what
1: i mean yeah I imagine yeah, the Reagan You totally thing.
0: talk about Reagan because, yeah, yeah, you can talk about the Reagan <laughs> because, thing. Like you bring up Reagan Because to. <laughs>
1: Let's talk about Reagan. <laughs> Reagan, you <laughs> knew your- it was coming. <laughs> it was coming. It's a movie. It's a horror movie in the '80s, and it's Carpenter. I mean, like, come on. He did. They live. Yeah. So you were mentioning how, like, the representation of the '50s may not be as shiny and as cool as we remember it. A lot of people who have analyzed this film talk about this time in the 80s that was nostalgic for the 50s, we were seeing a lot of films and a lot of pop culture reverting back to this time, thinking back to the future, thinking American graffiti, you know, and then comparing this to <clears throat> who comes in, but Reagan with the idea of wanting to get back to that golden time, the nuclear family, everything that we've talked about on this podcast. Make Essentially, America great again. It, yeah. I mean, that's, that's really how it feels. Essentially, like going back to this glorified time of the 50s, where, as we can see, if we think about that in the representation of this movie, it's not as great as we may have remembered. Hence, maybe that is what he's saying with the black guy dying first. Like, oh, yeah, remember the 50s? Yeah, black people didn't have rights in the 50s. Not really. Not really.
0: I'm so proud of you, Devin. What would I do? (laughs) Just by talking about Reagan. I'm so oh. proud of you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, just I want brought you him up this know that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I was going what I was saying before though is like there there'sn't a lot of talk about the 50s and this nostalgia present in the car, at least for my viewing of the film. For me, Carpenter kind of took on his own vision of what that meant, this nostalgia. I mean, how I read it was nostalgia is basically wanting to be in another time, right? It's like the love of not being present of where you are, which I think is very present in Arnie though. He's not necessarily nostalgic for the past. He is kind of wanting to get out of his present in the search for a future. You know, we do see him struggling with where he is in his, you know, he's being bullied. Like you said, he's a classic nerd, but he he he's having a lot of trouble with his parents who are like controlling his every move, which is incredible to watch. Um, but he he wants this sense of freedom, right, to like get out of the place that he is now. And that's kind of how I see the car represented through nostalgia is just like, what are the themes of nostalgia further dived into is how I see Carpenter kind of talking about it.
0: These times are not necessarily better than now. They're Kind of creepy even. And only looking at the good things is not an accurate depiction of how it really was. And there was still all this darkness back then as well. I mean, we've talked about the 1950s on this podcast before. They were not a, a sugar-coated mm-hmm. time at all. Um, And I think Carpenter's filmography in general, not to get too off topic, but Carpenter's filmography in general, I think has made comments toward that, that like uh, Halloween, I often interpret it with its suburban setting as being like a death of the American dream that this uh, white picket fences nuclear family that we've all come to think is like the new great Americas, it's it's not that. It's they're they're lined up for a slaughter.
1: Well, we've talked about the car. Uh, I do want to focus a little bit on Arnie. One other thing that changes from the book to the film. Is the fact that like you were saying the car is possessing Arnie is that what what happens in the book from based off of what you you read
0: I, from my understanding it is much more clear that Arnie is being possessed in the book and specifically with the spirit of LeBay the previous owner who's mentioned in the movie they still talk about him his wife and daughter were still killed in the car but in the book those were sacrifices uh to the car in the movie it's more framed as or implied that the car killed them because christine is jealous and yeah. that Lebe just didn't care the same way that arnie doesn't really care when people are being killed uh so long as he has christine no shitter ever gets in between him and christine <laughs>
1: But the movie makes it a little more, I guess, ambiguous if it is in fact the car. Well, yeah. not yes and no, right? Like, I mean, when when Lee is in the car, we do see her like okay. <laughs> the car acting up and like moving to kill her, right? But in the end, when it is we do finally see that Arnie is driving the car and comes out of the hood. So it's like this weird vague of like Christine does kill. But like Arnie's behind the wheel of the car. Can
0: we linger for a moment on that scene where Lee is choking? Because I think it's an interesting scene. So what happens in it? If if you if you don't remember, you haven't seen the movie. Uh, they're at a drive-in. Um, they've had a fight because Lee was like, "I fucking hate this fucking car. It is so weird, and you're more in love with the car than you're in love with me."
1: But to give a little more detail to that specific moment too. Arnie is pressuring her to go further and she's uncomfortable. She says she's uncomfortable because she doesn't want to do anything in the car. But leading up to that moment, they it is like hinted at they're going to be a little more sexual. And they, that is something that they do mention and fight about. And that's Arnie's perception of it, too, is that he thinks that she doesn't want to go further sexually.
0: And then a windshield wiper mysteriously uh, snaps out of its place a little bit for no reason. Arnie gets out to fix Christine. And then at the same moment, Lee begins choking on her sandwich. That's what happened to me the other day. And <laughs> The doors suddenly lock. So Arnie go- is going up to the driver's side door trying to open it, but it's it's locked from the inside. And then... Some random other guy, just someone who happened to be nearby, opens the passenger side door, gets Lee out, and does the Heimlich maneuver while Arnie is running up and telling him to get his hands off of her. He later says that this is like, I I thought he was attacking you or whatever, but it's a weird scene. It's like Mm -hmm. the doors are supposed to be locked, but that guy had no problem getting in. So. Was Arnie trying to help her or did he not really care?
1: Oh, no. I think he, at least my viewpoint is that he is. And I, I don't remember if we see um, Lee opening up the door. We do see her struggling with the the lock. Um, but it's also like if you were, from the argument of like, this is Christine trying to kill Lee, Christine could yeah. not be ready to show herself possibly so she unlocks the door for this mysterious man though if christine really does care about arnie in the way that she shows that she does um like when he's uh driving and takes his hands off the wheel and she guides him so that he doesn't crash you would think that like he wouldn't let she wouldn't let someone that he loves die especially not before he gets what he wants (laughs) sexually
0: it's kind of a fatal attraction thing isn't it like she She will kill christine is a a a very jealous car
1: <laughs> yeah yeah she fair. she wants
0: Arnie to herself, even like the radio cues seem to be her trying to cock block him and and stop <laughs> the sex from happening, like you should only have sex with me, haven't you seen Tatan?
1: yeah, tatan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I guess, like, thinking back the first death um, when she when she's coming off of the assembly line, like, we don't see that happen either. It's, it is implied. So I guess the first death that we really see that happens with the car is the bullies. But then, okay, but what about Darnell's death?
0: Yeah, I mean, that one was 100% Christine. That one's completely unambiguous. There's no way to claim Arnie was in there. It is still weird because, like, some of these deaths you can almost chop up to, like, the car is just not functioning properly because it's super old or whatever. But th- I mean, then you also have like, it literally heals itself. Like it, 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 there's clearly supernatural things happening. The car is yeah. definitely alive. Some of the more ambiguous moments I think you can discuss in a metaphorical sense, but not in a, I theorize that this car is not actually alive sense. It's just metaphors for things.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think there would be more argument to this is uh you know the car may not actually be alive if this film was more from Arnie's point of view. But this film isn't really from yeah. Arnie's point of view. Um yeah. It feels like Dennis's point of view for some of it and then well, I guess for most of it it feels like Dennis's point of view.
0: Yeah, the point of view kind of shifts and churns and it it's, it's kind of unafraid to go into anyone's POV at any moment. Cuz you're right, like the the scene Where we first see Christine self-repairing, if the movie had more ambiguity as a whole, then you could totally read that one scene as Arnie is imagining that she has this power. She isn't actually self-repairing, but then she does it like five other times all in front of other people and also. Like no, a car can't take that much damage and then just be okay. It was literally on fire at one point, and then the yeah. next morning, it's just normal.
1: <laughs> yeah, impossible. And like, even though Arnie does say, "Oh yeah, like I just found the pieces and blah blah blah," like, yeah, maybe if 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 they set up the world enough that that could be believable, then like maybe there'd be more in- ambiguity. But it it's just not. It's just not believable to me. But yeah. am I am I correct that you, while watching this film, you did have more of an argument for Arnie being the one to actually be killing people?
0: Yes. So I don't know if he's necessarily in the car more frequently. He's definitely in the car in the climax. He might have been in the car during some of the murders, like Mooch's murder. I think he had an alibi for Mud and Chop's murder, but the first one, I the first bully who gets killed in the alleyway he could have been in the car. But the the bigger argument is just that I think he's very much an alibi to it. I think he's very much like, yes, Christine, go hunt down those fucking bullies and murder them. Like, I know that he was possessed in the book, but I feel like the things that make him possessed aren't in the movie. I, I feel like that argument isn't here anymore, that it was lost yeah. in that adaptation And I very much read this as, no, this is the real Arnie. I mean, you have a moment, I think we already mentioned it. We have the moment when when Lee is like, oh, it's he's not acting like himself. And I'm like, "What, what are you talking about? You only met him after he had the car. How would you know what he's really like? (laughs) Right. <laughs> this is what he's really like
1: and, and and i mean like looking at it from the point of view that i mentioned earlier of like the car representing archie's freedom him growing up i mean yeah. I, I think it's really hard to look at any movie about a 17 18 year old and not say it's about a coming of age film like this is arnie coming into his own he's obviously struggling with where he is but like we see him I mean, he likes himself, you know, he becomes more confident in himself when we always want to see that in, in young people. And so it is him becoming who he truly is. And yeah, that's not who Arnie was before, but like he figures out what he likes, right? Like he likes this car. No one else likes this car, but he yeah. likes this car. He figures out what he's good at. He's good at fixing cars. Like in the beginning, the bullies are in the workshop class and Dennis is like, why the hell are you taking workshop? Ernie?" Ar- like. He he's being confident in his choices, I think, is really what we see throughout the film.
0: All his life, everyone has always made decisions for him. His parents are very strict. So they won't even let him play fellatio in Scrabble. <laughs> <laughs> even though he would have won if he'd played fellatio. like I'm I'm on his side there. He would it's a real word. He would have won. He knows what fellatio is. Come on, mom, you're 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 cheating. <laughs> <laughs> But regardless, <laughs> he's, he's had all the bullies controlling what he can and can't do in school. He's forced to go to teachers for protection. He, he isn't able to defend himself. Yeah. And now he is learning how to become who he is. He is no longer going to be taking all this shit from everyone. And what you get is, is scary. It's, he's a fucking monster. But that is the real him. I think. I don't know how many people agree or not. I'd love to hear from you guys. Tweet at us. Shoot us a message on Instagram. Let us know if you think that Arnie, if this is Arnie, do you hold Arnie accountable for his actions? That's a question we want to know. Yeah. Because I think think we should. I think he's totally responsible.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because no matter what, in the end... Him and Christine do become codependent. It is this. It is a toxic relationship. And yes. Christine can represent that independence, can represent Arnie becoming himself, that confidence. But it, it, in the end, no matter what, he is behind the wheel and they are one in the same. And all of this actually like brings me to this quote that Arnie has at the end when he's in the, well, near the end when he's in the car with Dennis and he's describing love. Do you remember this scene? Yeah,
0: yeah. Remind me, but I think so.
1: Dennis is showing his, his concern and Arnie is actually opening up and being like, we're really, me and Lee are worried about you, um, and this car. And Arnie's ex- trying to explain like what he's feeling and he describes it as, as love. And he says, let me tell you a little something about love, Dennis. Um, and he, he goes on to like a little bit of monologue, but at the end of it, um, he says, you know, when someone believes in you, man, you can do anything, any fucking thing in the entire universe. And when you believe right back in that someone, then watch out, world, because nobody can stop you. Nobody ever. And through this argument, I see himself as the one loving himself. Because otherwise, I mean, if we look at Christine as representing something, then what who is this love that Arnie is describing being with? You know, is it him and is it really him in the car, or is it him and it has to be him and something else, you know, if the car is meant to represent something
0: i think he does kind of see the car as a person in that sense and i feel like christine does have agency and you could do like a whole other podcast just discussing what are christine's motives and what what is christine's personality and trying to parse that out and i guess a lot of people who might argue that arnie is possessed would point to like well, this has happened before, this happened with Christine's previous owner, to which I would just say, in reality, like there are also people who are manipulative and wind up in toxic relationship after toxic relationship. And there is a draw there. There is something inside of Arnie that he saw Christine and said, that's my car. Mm -hmm. No one else saw that. Like Dennis looks at a car and said, "That's a piece of shit." Darnell saw and said, "That's a piece of shit." Like no one well, else that's saw what, connects what Arnie him to
1: saw. It. It. That's what people see when they look at Arnie, you know. Except for Dennis. Except for Lee.
0: Yeah, he describes that himself. He said he, he he had never seen something as ugly as himself. Something like that was his
1: line. Something like that.
0: But he knows he can fix her up.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of sad that like yeah that he's been living this life where where no one believes in him and then sees himself in a car. And ends up destroying everything that was actually good in his life, you know, his best friend, a potential girlfriend, a life as a as a mechanic as well. And I mean, ultimately, his life in the end that he's so blinded yep. by the way everyone else views him or the way he thinks everyone else views him that uh, he ends up going down this this dark path.
0: Before we move on, I just want to drop that. I think a lot of our conversation got pulled from this video essay. So I want to plug that if That's OK, please it was by matt draper it's on youtube stephen king versus john carpenter's christine the american graffiti of horror uh, so that's on matt draper's youtube channel strongly recommend that video essay it's it's really good and we pulled quite a bit from there
1: and we'll uh, we'll put the link in the show notes as well
0: do you want to introduce the next movie Devin?
1: eva and franklin are a young couple in love happily living in a carefree life in the city and then kevin is born Our story is told through flashbacks of Kevin's childhood as present-day Eva is struggling to cope with the life Kevin has left her. Her neighbors are hostile, screaming at her, hitting her, and covering her house in red paint. She works at a job she's overqualified for, with a guy who is very handsy, and she's alone, except once a week she visits Kevin in prison. But why? As a baby, Kevin was relentless, crying constantly, but only around Eva. As a child, he was cold and difficult refusing to be potty trained, but acting like an angel around his father. After Kevin's sister is born, Eva began to notice Kevin's violent tendencies. Did he kill Celia's guinea pig? Did he poison Celia with drain cleaner, or was it really an accident? Through it all, one tender memory remains. When Kevin was a boy, he was sick, and Eva read him Robin Hood. Kevin cozy up to her in a moment that eventually defined him. As he grew older, Kevin became skilled at the bow, just like Robin Hood. And it was the bow that he shot at his high school classmates. And it was with the bow that he murdered his father and sister. And now Kevin is in prison, and Eva is living with the consequences. This is We Need to Talk About Kevin, directed by Lynn Ramsey. Screenplay by Lynn Ramsey, Rory Stewart Kinnear, based on a novel by Lionel Shriver.
0: We need to talk about, we need to talk about Kevin.
1: Wait, what? Oh, I get it, I get we, it, we I get to, it, because we we're talking talk about it now.
0: About, we need to talk about Kevin. Got yeah. it. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> it took a second to get there.
0: Just real fast, I know there's a lot of business going around about Ezra Miller. We're not talking about any of that. We we don't care. That is not relevant at all.
1: Well, we care. <laughs> yeah, we care, we care. <laughs> we, but we care.
0: For the context of this current episode, that is not what the discussion is, so please don't expect any of that. No real life Ezra Miller drama. That said, if we're using he, him, we're referring to Kevin. If we're using they, them, we're referring to Ezra. Great. That out of the way, what I want to bring up, you mentioned some of the nonlinear structure in your summary, and the way this movie is told narratively is very interesting and I'm uh, not overly unique, but it is like a style, it is a choice. How it's cutting yeah. back and forth. So, do you think that everything we're shown is meant to be taken completely literally, or is there something else going on?
1: Yeah, it's it's a very interesting question because I think you know every time that we are presented with um, a narrator in this sense, it is Eva um, going through flashbacks. I think we do have to think about you know is there is there a viewpoint a little shaded or is it? it in this case, colored red. Um, in a way, <laughs> there there are many times in this movie where I'm wondering if a lot of this even happened. For, for certain points, um, I mean, something that is carefully done throughout the film is never actually seeing certain moments happen. I mean, for instance, the uh, the guinea pig, right? Um, mm. how do we find out the guinea pig died? It isn't explicitly said. Eva goes to the sink, looks down, and we are presented with the idea that possibly the guinea pig is in the garbage disposal. But isn't explicitly said. Even the sound design isn't necessarily like used to show that there is a guinea pig in there. And then the very next moment, she uses the drain cleaner, pours it down the drain, and places it next to the sink. We don't see her put it away. The very next scene. We find out that Celia drank it. Whatever happened ends, it up, in her eye. ends up losing an eye. But we, again, don't actually see, was it Kevin or did Eva actually leave it out? And it did affect Celia in some way. Moments like that are, are shown throughout the film. And I think it, it, it is interesting that it does um, allow room for questioning if if these things actually happened or if they're the way Eva remembers them.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ambiguity things like that there's even just some ambiguity in terms of like is it an unreliable narrator tale there are some moments that i explicitly read as surreal like the shots of kevin in the gym i i I don't think those are shots of what how he actually did it i don't think we Mm -hmm. actually see how he did it i think this is eva's imagination of how he might have done it because um, it's right it's it's weird the way those are shut up he's like doing a he's like doing a, a celebratory pose or something in a completely empty gymnasium it's very weird how that scene is set up and then there are things like his interview on TV mm-hmm. when he he has this chilling monologue talking we'll get it more into the monologue later but the, it's all framed as this is some interview that he did in the days following the event that doesn't happen ever like no no news station interviews the murderer that is not a thing and it's so weird that that's in the movie and i almost don't believe that's real i don't believe that he actually gave that interview or ever said that i think that that is eva's imagination that not like a hallucination but like she is Imagining what he might say, she is trying to apply some motivation because she can't figure out why he did this.
1: Right? Yeah, I think I think that's really key because in the last scene when she visits him on the is it, does she visit him on the two year anniversary? That's the last scene. Yeah, and she asked the question, "Why did why did you do this?" And he says, "He doesn't he doesn't know anymore. He thought he did, but he doesn't know anymore." And I totally agree with you. We see Eva in present day remembering these memories and going back through her whole entire life with Kevin, trying to pinpoint and trying to understand, you know, why he did this or at what point did she know that he was going to do this? At what point did he know that he was going to do this? What led him to do this? Like we see her at these specific points in time, like looking back and trying to trying to figure out why.
0: She's like remembering when he was a baby and wouldn't stop crying and how he would stop crying when his father is around. And the implication is like, oh, he's this infant child who's manipulating his parents and putting on a nice face for his father while letting his mother know, like, I got you. He's an infant. Was is she right? Is that a correct assessment of what happened? Or is, is he just a baby who in one moment was crying and in another was not? she also like tries to drown it out with a jackhammer and just has this baby right next to a jackhammer which is as someone with a niece right now I would not do that
1: <laughs> yeah because you brought it up if I'm if I'm good to speak on the motherhood angle a little bit and I think motherhood is is ever present in this in that moment that you see her yeah next to the jackhammer I think is a hard moment to watch because you know it's hurting the baby but at the same time the moments leading up to it you see her in pain and you see her struggling with her new motherhood. And to me, this film really is about the struggles of motherhood and specifically, probably someone who doesn't necessarily or wasn't ready to become a mom. She does look back at her life before Kevin, her life with Franklin in the city in kind of this this romantic way. know, them laughing through the streets. I mean, them just laughing and being in love in general. Their relationship, uh, Eva and Franklin's, it is fraught throughout mostly because of Kevin. Um, But we do sometimes see these loving moments between them.
0: Even then, though, she was a travel journalist, I understand. She is a very independent person before Kevin came along. She would travel the world and write about it. The opening scene is her... In I believe Spain at a festival that I forgot the name of, but it's a real festival. And it's a it's a great opening image because it, it looks like she's basically swimming through guts. So it's yeah. it, it it is emblematic of what's to come. But for her, it's also just this moment of true ecstasy, of actual yeah. joy. I also took away a potentially controversial take from that, which is that. I, I got the impression that the baby came from there, and that Franklin's not actually the father. and I, I don't think he knows huh. that.
1: Can you walk me through how you came to that? because I, I didn't get that read at all, but I'm curious. I
0: think a lot of it was just the way it's edited. like there, there there's definitely no hard, hard evidence, but but then it goes from the scenes of Spain. I think Franklin texts her. He's like, Hi, I really miss you. I hope you're coming back soon. And then the next scene, she's back and she's pregnant. And it just, to me, opened that possibility that she had had some Hmm. sort of affair while she was overseas. And that. But you don't see her
1: with a guy overseas at all?
0: Not explicitly, but she could have been.
1: Personally, I do think that's a stretch because. Okay it's interesting. And I'm trying to um, see for me, I, I get a different read because like, I think with the editing style, I mean, as we said, it's surrealist. It does cut through time in a really strange way. Um, so yes, maybe that was an editing moment that was meant to imply that. But at the same time, it's like, you said this moment for her in Spain is ecstasy. And that's that was my reading as well, that her life before Kevin was the one that she really, really loved. And then Kevin happened. And she's obviously not very happy as a mother. She's, she's really, really struggling. And that's kind of how I saw that as like two moments of pure joy and then one of pure fear. Where she, the life before her and the life that she had before is completely going to be ripped away. Even the moment when when Franklin suggests they move out of the city. Like you see her her personality being stripped away more and more. I don't I don't I don't want to like put down your your read cuz I think like it's there and it's meant to be ambiguous and like you could read it that way. I just took it in a very different way of like it's hard to say that she was unfaithful. Like that that's putting a lot on her, you know.
0: I'm not saying it as a thing to bash her. I don't I don't care if she sleeps with another man, that's fine. It's this trope in a lot of movies about the demon children or whatever where sometimes the the parenthood is unknowable. That like in the Omen, without spoiling too much, uh, these he's swapped at birth. His parents aren't his real parents, and eventually you find out who who is his biological mother, and it is not what do you think? Rosemary's Baby has the same trope. Like this, this trope's all over demon child media. Sure. In we need to talk about Kevin. I feel like we are shown a lot of comparisons of how Kevin is Eva's son but he never really feels like Franklin's son. That Franklin always comes off as this outsider who thinks he understands what's going on but does
1: not. Sure, sure. I I definitely agree with that Franklin bit. Um for me saying that possibly Kevin's the son of somebody else does kind of take away from this idea of like this is a hard Motherhood and a reality of motherhood that does exist. I feel like when you say that, like, Kevin could possibly come from somewhere else, it takes away a little bit of the importance of showing this type of mother on screen, one who is struggling, because in a sense, you take away some of it.
0: I hear that. That trope can be harmful as well. So,
1: yeah, I mean, even so, the movie was based on a book, like we, like I had mentioned. The author of the book actually had a really hard time getting it published at first because so many people did not want to show this depiction of motherhood. They were like, we do not Mm. want to show her struggling to be a good mother and being an unfit mother. I mean, a lot of people who read the book said that Eva was an unlikable character, specifically like a she's an unsympathetic character. Do you 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 see that in the film? Uh, Ha ha. No, you can't ask me the same time I ask you. (laughs) Personally, no, I, I don't find her as an unsympathetic character. I mean, I haven't read the book, so I can't speak to, to that. But at least her portrayal in this film, I think Lynn Ramsey does a really spectacular job of, of showing the viewpoint of the mother in a way that we can sympathize with her not being happy in the place that she is and seeing the reasons why, specifically through Kevin's depiction as a, a tough child.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think she is sympathetic. She is flawed. She is not a perfect angel of a human being she tells her child that she wishes she was in france and that her life was so much better before him like she's clearly not doing everything right but that's human right it's fine to address that sometimes people don't click with motherhood i i've seen an interpretation where eva is implied to have postpartum depression disorder after this pregnancy, that she's just feeling depressed. She isn't connecting with her son. She wants to connect with her son. She tries to connect with her son, but is unable to, whether that is because he is already a psychopath when he's an infant, which I I don't know enough about psychology to comment on that, or if it's (laughs) because she's dealing with this postpartum and is just struggling as a mother like people struggle as mothers it's it's human
1: and uh, dare I take us down this path of the patriarchy this is something that I think is exemplified in in Franklin like you were mentioning there is an expectancy on mothers to behave a certain way as we're talking about people didn't like her because she didn't behave the way that we want mothers to behave point blank here comes Franklin happy really bonding with the child really just like being kind of carefree, and the, it plays into this idea of that dad's gonna be, you know, the dad's gonna be the fun dads, and mothers have to be kind of the hard hand. They, there's a different expectancy on mothers than there are on fathers, supposedly, yeah. or as like as as is portrayed in the patriarchy, right? He can be a little more carefree.
0: I was actually a lot less sympathetic to Franklin on this watch. The last time I saw this was in theaters. Like it's been over a decade oh since I've seen this. But back then, I I just saw Franklin as like, yeah, he's the dad. He doesn't know what's going on. He's dumb. Now I'm watching Mm. him like, he's the dad. Why the fuck doesn't he know what's going on? Mm. His child is able to so easily manipulate him, but he has his wife telling him like, hey, there's something wrong with our son. I think he's doing all this bullshit. And Franklin's like, nah, he's just a sweet boy. I'm going to get him a bow and arrow for Christmas.
1: Like, yeah, what? well, it's, it's that other thing dude. of like, <laughs> hey, believe women like she's she's saying, hey, this is my experience and it sucks. And everyone's like, yeah, OK, whatever. That's like you're a mom. Like, yeah, he cries. Boo hoo. He's a baby. She's like, no, yeah. <laughs> he cries a lot. And Franklin's just like, I don't know what to tell you, dude.
0: The bow and arrow thing specifically is weird because I, I almost saw it as him getting revenge on Eva that there's that moment when they're reading Robin Hood and Kevin and Eva are finally connecting for like the first time in like 10 years or whatever and Franklin sees this and he wants to get in and Kevin is like go away yeah franklin's like whoa oh my god my my son doesn't love me anymore he likes the mom more now i'm going to get him a bow and arrow that'll one up her
1: he becomes jealous which is so weird because dude this whole time, you and Kevin have been bros. Why, yeah? Why do you want to take this away from her? Let me involve yeah. myself on this moment.
0: Even the divorce conversation, like we don't get to hear the entire conversation. But the movie's called "We Need to Talk About Kevin." They never really talk about Kevin. She there tries are several times. Yes, there are several times when she tries, and every time he's just like, "No." And the divorce conversation is implied to have come out of that. that she was like, hey, I think our son might be really dangerous. And he's like, no, he's a sweet boy. You're a bad mom. We're getting a divorce. Right. Kevin seems to even understand that that is what's being happening. His His line is the one that leads us to think that, that he comes out and says, how would I not know the context? I am the context.
1: Going back to what you were, you, there was one point that you said earlier that with the bow and arrow, that it was him getting punishment on Eva. At first, I thought you were talking about Kevin because mm. my my whole read of this movie was Kevin does what he does to punish Eva, essentially, Um, or at least if it's Eva's point of view, that's how she sees it is that this is punishment for herself. Very selfish way of looking at it, I guess, <laughs> where like it's it's. It's so sad that the one thing that bonds them, this Robin Hood that becomes the bow and arrow, represented in the bow and arrow, is the thing that he uses to destroy, basically their lives um, and the lives of his father and sister. And there are several moments throughout the film where it seems like everything he's doing is pointedly at her, uh, like the potty training scene and him specifically, like loving his father and laughing and saying yes, daddy, while looking at her and being upset and cold.
0: So I have to ask: Do you? think because there are a few moments when Eva we said that she's not always the perfect mother. Do you think any of what she does borders or gets to be counted as abuse? Like would you consider her to some extent abusive?
1: Look, we do see the moment where she succumbs to her emotions and does throw Kevin into a wall. So like I feel like that flat out like that's abuse. But I don't see any other time besides that where she's physical. She tries really, really hard to be a good mom, or at least to be a mother. That it's, I, I have I'm struggling to agree with the fact that she is abusive. Like, did you read it as she's abusive?
0: I, I think there are more moments of uh, potential abuse. I, I think the jackhammer scene is definitely abusive. That you should not be intentionally holding this fragile newborn next to a loud as fuck jackhammer like yeah. later she's like oh i'm afraid he cried so much that it damaged his hearing it's like no you're afraid the jackhammer you exposed him to damaged his hearing yeah <laughs> because it could have i i think that there's some verbal abuse in there when she's like telling him how how much she fucking hates him when he's 2 years old or whatever the throwing i'm almost more willing to forgive because it is like it, it feels more like an accident. Like she's not throwing him to hurt him. She's throwing him to, to get him onto the bed and misses because she's angry. And then it works. And he stops body training. Well, it works, but it works and, and it teaches him that violence is the answer and violence will make people do things.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: When he talks about it as an adult, he, he compares it to how you toilet train cats by shoving their face in their own shit. So that they they don't like that, so they'll they'll use the box. And he's not saying this in like this is a horrible thing you did to me. He's saying it in a way where it's like I was really impressed with that. How you you showed your strength, yeah. and and managed to use violence to get me to do what you wanted. That that was impressive of you, mom. It's very much not the right lesson. Yeah. That said, going off the idea that these are her memories. I I feel like a lot of it is her questioning herself if she's responsible. And I don't think there were many more moments of abuse. I think she's highlighting the few things like, well, I did hold him by that jackhammer. I did tell him that I hated him. I did uh, break his arm, uh, even if it was an accident. And she's questioning for herself if she's abusive, I think.
1: Which is maybe why those moments with the drain cleaner and the gerbil, maybe that's why they're ambiguous too, right? Like if these are her memories, maybe she really just doesn't – she doesn't remember th- those moments. And it is her questioning abuse even towards Celia.
0: I did want to ask because I think that's such an interesting scene. Do you, what, what do you think happened there? Do you think that Kevin took out his sister's eye or do you think that it was left out and Celia did it by mistake?
1: I'm on the camp of it was Kevin, I think. Throughout I'm, the film,
0: I'm I'm on I'm on the cam- I I think it was both. I th- I think she did leave it out, but I think Kevin.
1: St- oh. it was still Kevin. <laughs> yeah, that's that's I I do agree with that because I I yeah I think that's a good point in that like she knew she knows at this point who what Kevin can do. I mean she's looking yes. supposedly looking at the dead uh, guinea pig in the sink, and yeah, yes. and then she leaves out the the drain cleaner.
0: Even going off your theory that Kevin is punishing his mother. Kevin sees, oh, she left the drain cleaner out. Well, let's show her what happens if she's going to leave the drain cleaner out.
1: Right. Shoving his his mother's face in her own piss, right? Or yes. whatever it is. Yeah.
0: And then, of course, Franken will just blame Eva for it. But even then, it's ambiguous because I, I, I don't think that she knows for certain whether or not she put it away. Like, it's, it was so long ago at this point. Our memories are not very reliable. Like, right. she could have forgotten to put it away, or she could have put it away. She doesn't
1: remember. These are all characters through her memories. I mean, we talked about Franklin so much, but like if Franklin being like overly enthusiastic and always being on Kevin's side and them being buddy buddy could just be her point of view. Like it it, it it's not necessarily that's like that's how it was, but that's how she viewed it to be is that she felt ostracized from a loving family and she blamed yeah. Kevin for it. Okay, so when Kevin does finally go to the school and someone says to Eva, doesn't your child go to whatever high school it is? I forget. And she goes to the high school. At what point did you get that she knew that it was Kevin?
0: I was wondering that as well because I think the moment she sees the bike lock, she knows. But I feel like she had to have had the suspicion in her mind before that. The bike yeah. lock is a confirmation. I feel like she's going there and she's Hoping it's not Kevin, totally. But she knows it's a possibility, and then she sees the bike lock, and she knows that he bought bike locks. That's that.
1: I agree that I think that that would be the turning point. They almost play it in the film like it's not until she sees Kevin she has the reaction of "Oh my god, it's Kevin," which is fascinating to me because I think it should be the moment of the bike lock of like the yeah, that's that's confirmed. Like Kevin put that bike lock there. But if we're looking at her this film as like a memory or like an account of her thesis of Kevin was always a problem child. And this is the, these are the, this is the evidence I will have to show that Kevin was always going to end up being this problem child Then she should have known probably the second that that woman said there was something wrong at the school, you know?
0: But she hopes she's wrong.
1: She hopes she's wrong, but like she would have to know from the beginning, if this was her life, would she have not known from the beginning that something's wrong with Kevin?
0: So my one last question before we start comparing the movies, Uh, at the end of the movie, Kevin kills a bunch of kids in his school. Apparently the book specifies it's 11 kids, but it's not specified in the movie how many. And he also kills his father and his sister. He does not kill his mother. Considering how much he planned this, I have to believe that that is intentional.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Why do you think that he spared his mother?
1: I think it's it's him punishing his mom very specifically. I think in, in Eva's take of Kevin was always a problem child, in that same take, she's saying he's a problem child because of me. And I feel like she does take blame for how he was raised, even though she puts blame on him at the same time, if that makes sense. We do have to consider the ending of, look, after all this happens, Eva still shows up for her child once a week. And in the end, she does hug him. Maybe that's her punishment on him, but we have to like think about why, why does she change after all this? And is it because of what Kevin took away from her? Or is it because of what he gave her? I don't know. Did you have a different reading of why she was spared?
0: I did. This is so interesting.
1: Ooh, (laughs) Tell me more.
0: I read that he spared her because he respects her. I think that he sees himself in his mother and he sees his mother in himself. And throughout their life, yes, he's buddy-buddy with his father, but that's because it's so easy to manipulate his father. Yeah. It's not so easy to manipulate his mother. She knows what he is. She sees him, and he knows that she sees him. He respects her for for breaking his arm that one time to get him to use the fucking toilet. I mean, in, after that scene, he goes and he lies to his father. He covers up for her. I, yeah. I think even in that moment, he was like, wow, good job, Mom. I'm, you're not getting in trouble for this. That was awesome. <laughs> like... <laughs> I mean, there's almost an Oedipal complex to it in some sense. No. Like, I, I hate to do that because the Oedipal complex is so much bullshit. But he does kill his father, and winds up alone with his mother, uh, who he continues to st- masturbate while staring at in that one scene when she walks in on him, which is oh, very God. weird. I, I, I think he respects her. There, there's a lot of visual imagery throughout the movie that combines them that you have like. Kevin chewing his nails in the one scene. He like pulls the nails out of his mouth, lines them up. It's really gross. And then a few scenes later, we have Eva in present day doing the same with eggshells. That are eggshells mm. stuck in her food and she pulls them out and it's like the same shot as Kevin with the nails. Uh, and there's a few moments like that where they're like shot in similar ways. I think he sees that she is someone who he cannot manipulate so easily that she knows what he is she taught him this Robin Hood shit. Like he he sees her as an equal, and he wants to keep that around.
1: That's fascinating.
0: It's not that he loves her or anything like that; just that he respects right. her, and he does not believe that she is deserving of killing.
1: I like that we had different viewpoints of it. So, so what do you see of as the end? Because I I gave a little bit about that, well as well, but uh, your viewpoint on why Eva. Sticks around and and stays with Kevin. Why she
0: continues to see him?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I feel like she doesn't have more ch- much choice. I mean, I think she's punishing herself. Whether or not you consider her responsible, I don't. Like, what the fuck are you even supposed to do in that situation? There is no guidebook for. Her. I think my son is a psychopath. Please help me. Like, she didn't have any yeah. hard evidence that he was going to shoot up his school. That was still a surprise to her. So. There wasn't really anything she could have done. But I think she still sees it as her fault. And I think that a lot of the movie is her reflecting on their lives and trying to find the moments where she caused this. Yeah. And I think she is punishing herself now. Kevin is the last thing she has left. He took away everything from her that she would have liked. He took away... Her independence when he was a baby. He took away her husband, who she didn't want to divorce. He took away her daughter, who was an innocent. He took away her reputation. He took he took everything from her. Yeah. But he's also her son. And I think she does still love him, despite all that. She's going to keep seeing him. And she wants to know... I mean, the the last thing in the movie is her asking him why she want. She still doesn't understand it. She wants to know yeah. if she's at fault or not. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. The point, too, of, of she still loves him. She still has that part that, you know, she wants to be maybe not not want, but still has to be a mom. And if I can move us into the comparisons, I'm curious, this nature versus nurture. Is Eva to blame? Is Franklin to blame? Was Kevin always this way, as you said, that like maybe he was possibly a psychopath from birth? But how do you see that playing into Christine?
0: I mean, I think it's always a bit of both. I, I think psychologists have been asking this question forever, and I think it's always a bit of both. Child psychopathy is weird. And we talked about this on the podcast before in our episode on American Psycho and Better Watch Out. We talked about, the, about what psychopathy is and the complications of diagnosing a child as a psychopath. And the, the DSM currently will tell you you shouldn't do that. There is some controversy in the medical field. I'm not an expert. I did like a day or two of research at most on this. Like, I am not an expert. Please (laughs) do your own research. There is a legitimacy to not wanting to diagnose children as psychopaths because children who score high on psychopathy tests frequently as they get older, those scores will just go down. Mm. Oh, it was just a teenage thing and now they're fine. They're not a significant danger. It should also be mentioned that many psychopaths are not dangerous it is a disorder it's one of the higher risk disorders for for violence but it, it doesn't th- that is not presumed you can be a psychopath and not be violent you can be a psychopath and a good person just want to clarify that <laughs> anyway <laughs> there is a counter argument to this though that someone who is a psychopath should still be treated. Well, antisocial personality is the actual disorder. We do want to be able to treat them. And because we won't diagnose children with this disorder, it makes it harder to treat them. There is a childhood version of it, which Kevin would definitely have called conduct disorder, but it, it's not the same. And it, it feels like he needs a better treatment and, I mean, psychopathy doesn't come out of nowhere. If there's an adult with antisocial personality disorder, then they would have been showing those symptoms early on as well. Sure. So it's very mixed, hard to decipher exactly what to do about this.
1: But when you say treatment, I mean that implies nurture, right? Like, yes. When there's a lack of treatment, that is the nurture. It is it is. That is what happens. It is your decision on how their life is being conducted in that moment versus nature, which is the how how they're born, and um, that has nothing to do with our actions, right? The yes. actions that that Eva does or that Arnie's parents do- does or don't do that that's the nurture part as well. But when Eva does see Kevin have these tendencies early on. She doesn't do much about them. She tells Franklin about them, but and tells the doctor about them, who also ignores her fears.
0: Yeah, and you that er, that early scene there, there's when she goes to the doctor and she's like, "He should be talking by now." And the doctor's like, "Oh, there's nothing wrong well with him. I wouldn't worry about it." Yeah, I'm just watching it. And I'm like, "No, yeah, that that's weird, though. That that is weird." He right? He should. I'm not a doctor. I don't fucking know. But, but I you feel should like, ask
1: more about it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I feel like a good doctor would be like, oh, I don't see anything wrong. So we should probably do a few more tests because he should definitely be talking by now. Like, no, that kid is like two years old or something. He's definitely older than my niece. And my niece is, she's not talking, talking, but she is saying words. She says, duck. She says, uh oh. She says, Aww. mama.
1: Right. Like, we should look into this a little bit more. Yeah. So the nurture there is not necessarily great nurture. I do want to talk about the Christine because I think Arnie's parents and Christine are interesting. They are very controlling. you are extremely controlling. And it's to the point where he really pushes back against them as he goes on his journey to become who he is in the end. And and yeah, it's, it's what he's doing is to counteract what they do. But in the same sense, again, that is nurture. Whatever they are doing is causing a reaction in his personality.
0: Obviously, this is not intentional on their part. They do love right. their son. And everything they're doing is because they believe it's what's best for him. Like, it's hard to completely hate them at the same time. They are doing what they believe is right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But yes, it is hurting him. It is constraining him. And it is suffocating him. And all of these feelings of rage and anger that are inside of him Are just being bottled up. And when you bottle those feelings up, they fucking explode. Do you think he's a psychopath? I don't know. Would he have antisocial personality disorder?
1: No, I don't think so. I think, like, I mean, he gets a girlfriend all on his own. He has a great friend that, like, is in a different social circle and I'm sure is, like, a really hard relationship to hold on to throughout high school, but they're still really good friends.
0: He's kind of abusive to his girlfriend.
1: That's him also like down the line too. But I think he he tries to stand up for himself. He tries to like do what he wants to do in high school. I think it very much is like the society that is pushing him down and his parents restricting him. Not that I blame the parents, which is something that I think is questioned in both films. We the audience also society also does the child blame the parents for what they become? Yes.
0: Arnie definitely does. Already, 100% yeah. is like, oh, yeah, my parents. Fuck my parents. Hate them. They they suck. Uh, and I, I don't want to deal with them anymore. I mean, when the car is trash, he literally tells his parents that it's their fault
1: for yeah. not
0: letting them park the car here. Yeah. she straight up blames them. And he abuses them too.
1: He does. He does. And yeah, him screaming and his mom is like shaking and so scared. And he's still like, oh, fuck you, mom.
0: He assaults his father.
1: Yeah, he becomes scary. And then like, yeah, if we were to take my read of Kevin, ours differ, but Kevin is straight up blaming his mom for for what's happening.
0: I mean, I would agree that I think Kevin is blaming his mom, but I think Kevin- is isn't blaming her in a bad way. He's like, Yeah, oh, thank you for making me who I am, mom. Mm, right.
1: That's <laughs> that's that's where it ours differ. Right, right, right. Yeah. He's <laughs> he's happy to get to where he is. <laughs> and what really hurt me, I mean, we're talking about does society blame the parents also, and we see the parents and her neighbors like punishing Eva because they do somewhat blame her for raising Kevin the way that he is. But it, it it's so painful because she lost her husband and she lost another baby. Like she's yeah. also a victim. And it's so terrible that these people are throwing paint at her house and slapping her on the street when like, she is also going through loss. And it is a powerful scene when one of the victims who doesn't die, but did get sh- shot by an arrow um, from Kevin is like, going up to eva and trying to sympathize with her because he knows that she's yeah. going through something as well
0: and she at first is ready to run away because she's she's not expecting kindness she's expecting him right. to be yelling at her and blaming her and he's like he, he understands I, I also like that scene but yeah they're really fucking horrible to her and I, I don't know that much about it but i think that that is pretty accurate society loves to blame the parents
1: got to blame somebody and they 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 always want to find a reason and usually saying that oh he was you know a psychopath from birth doesn't give much of a reason that is something that you can change or something that you can fix
0: in Columbine they tried to blame violent video games they tried yeah. to blame bullying people blame mental illness too i mean we are talking no. about antisocial personality disorder right now but like People will harbor like, oh, this shooter was bipolar. Okay, well, that must mean bipolar is going to make people shoot up schools. No, it's that's not true. B- people who right. are, have bipolar are not more likely to be dangerous than anyone else. People who have schizophrenia are not more likely to be dangerous than anyone else. We're all just chasing new stigmas, trying to to stigmatize new people, finding new scapegoats. Just, just get fucking gun control, guys. Come on. stop. <laughs> the issue is fucking gun control.
1: <laughs> I agree, but I'm going to put it in the context of this film where it is fascinating, though. Kevin doesn't use a gun. He uses a bow and arrow. It's an interesting choice because it kind of takes the conversation about gun control out of the storyline to where you do need to focus on the nature versus nurture of things. And yes. it, yeah. Which it is, yeah, very fascinating that point. And I mean, like Arnie doesn't use a gun either, or Christine doesn't use a gun either.
0: Yeah, they they use they use a car, but it did come out in nineteen eighty three. This was not <laughs> widely talked about. Yeah, very pre Columbine. Which I mean, he's not doing his crimes at the school, but it is a lot of the similar things. He's targeting the people who are mean to him. Uh, he targets his girlfriend. He targets his best mm-hmm. friend. He kills his boss. Uh, or Christine kills his boss. It, Arnie seems upset about that one, but.
1: But it is people, What what is shown in both is that people recognize troubling behavior in both of our, yes. I'll say school shooters because that's how we're seeing it. Uh, or that's the viewpoint that we're reading it as for this episode. And either don't do enough or are not believed or don't have the resources to do something. I mean, even the teacher notices there's an issue. A bully pulls a knife out on him, and all the teacher can do is like, okay, go to the office, dude. Like, That bully could have stabbed him.
0: Did you sympathize with Arnie before he started killing people?
1: Yeah. I do believe that he wasn't as troubled by the bullying. I thought that scene was weird. It was more so like Dennis was worried about Arnie in that instance, more than Arnie was worried about himself. He's like, no, this is just my life. And then Dennis was like, no, Arnie, you need to be more concerned about how they're treating you. And then he escalates it. And then Dennis escalates it by coming into the scene.
0: In my second watch, I didn't get this on my first watch because I don't think I knew what I was in for yet. But on my second watch, I kind of interpreted that scene as Arnie being upset that he doesn't have the power, that he needs other people to help him. Like he needs Dennis to come and step in, but he wishes he could have done that himself. Yeah. He needs the teacher to come in and help, but he doesn't like that he has to tell the teacher on the bully. Be like, yes, he had a knife. Like he's, he mumbles yeah. that. He's reluctant about it. And on your, fr- on my first watch, that's just like fear of the bully. On my second watch, that's like, he fucking hates this. He has no control in the situation, he has no power. And he wants power. And then like two minutes later, he sees Christine and he's like, that's it. That's what will get me out of this.
1: And then he has confidence and has the power because we don't even know. I mean, looking at it from his romantic point of view as well, like he always wanted a girl, but he's like, no, I won't. I won't ever get one because he's not confident. We just believe he has the power to get one. But we never actually see that Christine like is the reason why Lee gets with him. We actually don't know that why they get together.
0: feels like there should be a scene there, especially because with Lee being such a flat character, it really feels like we needed more of her.
1: Yeah, I'm just not going to talk about the way women are portrayed in this movie. (laughs) I I I don't want to suggest anything
0: to make the movie longer, but we probably needed to see why the fuck Lee went out with Arnie. Women aren't portrayed great in this movie, but I will somewhat defend when the men are objectifying the women, because I think it's a point. Uh, I think when you first watch this movie, it is really easy to sympathize with Artie in the beginning, because you're seeing a trope. You're looking at him, and he is the epitome of the trope of this loser nerd kid. He's Peter Parker in the uh, 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 Sam Raimi Spider-Man before he gets bit. And, mm. and, and Dennis is the Harry Osborne then.
1: Exactly, he,
0: He is such a fucking loser and you just assume that you know this character. But I think a lot of that sympathy and a lot of that assumption is just projection. You're projecting your assumptions and thinking that that's what Arnie is. But none of his behavior actually suggests that. The behavior he gives us is objectifying women. It's, oh, what about this woman? She's not good enough for me. What about this woman? She's not good enough for me. Then a cute girl is flirting with Dennis, and Arnie comes up and starts mocking her right behind her back. It's Like he, mm. he's not—he's not doing anything nice. He's—he's he's kind of being a fucking asshole. Like <laughs> yeah. I'm not convinced that he is who we think he is. Ever.
1: That's a really good point. And that goes to what we are saying earlier, right? It's like, it's not him becoming any more of a bad person than he already was. Yeah. It's just it's just him coming into his own at the end. This, Yeah. I like that rate of like, this is, he, it's always been set up that he was going to pressure Lee. He like
0: laughs at some point when, when someone refers to Lee as his girlfriend. He just laughs and says she's not like- Yeah. He wasn't actually trying to date her. He was just trying to get in her pants.
1: Which is maybe why Christine's like, okay, she can die now because- She's not going to give you what you want, the whole reason why we're here. And yeah, yeah. oh, oh he, he laughs when Dennis is like, oh, like, don't you love Lee? And then Arnie's like, L- LOL. No. <laughs> I love the car.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. Well, going off of this, because the idea of the episode is kind of a why do these teens kill both in the movies, but also in reality. and I don't think we're going to get a real answer, but there is this. Scene in We Need to Talk About Kevin, which you've discussed a little bit, where he's talking about consumerism. He, he's saying uh, everyone's just watching their TVs. Even the people on TV are watching TVs. And the things they're all watching is people like me. H- how do you think that ties in to both movies? Because it is a really interesting monologue. How do you think it ties in?
1: I mean, when we talk about media, we're pretty much talking about like the the consumerist culture, right? which I didn't see as much in Kevin. The, the TV thing is is interesting, but I never got the the hint before that moment that he was doing this for any sort of fame, for any sort of reason. I kind of feel like it's almost this thing, like you mentioned, they blamed Columbine on video games, a bullet point to a possible reason of why teens do this and thus a bullet point in Eva's mind that she should consider as a reason why Kevin's doing this. So I didn't see it as much of a theme in, in Kevin.
0: I agree with you on that. I, I mean, I think we mentioned earlier that we we both kind of see the scene as not being real, that it might be something Eva is imagining. Right. Yeah, he doesn't really ever address consumerism outside of it. Uh, if we want to take it literally for a moment, then you yeah. might be able to say that Kevin is bored and that he it, it could just literally be that he is bored and this is something he's doing to... Assuage his boredom for a minute, because that is yeah. a common symptom of psychopathy. Is boredom. It's also compulsive lying. So Kevin could literally just be lying right now.
1: He could be giving us what we want. You know, we want to mm-hmm. blame consumer culture, or we want to blame the media.
0: The monologue is chilling, but it feels very much like something an Aaron Sorkin thriller would write, and we all know Aaron Sorkin thrillers aren't real.
1: and and this 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 suppose we go off of that suppose we go that kevin is is lying um in order to please the the broader uh society that we will pinpoint that we want to blame the media that we want to blame consumerism i kind of seen that also in in christine i know a lot of people read consumerist culture within christine specifically because christine is a bright shiny car it's not something that i necessarily saw as a main point of Christine. I mean, I did first and foremost look at it as a coming of age story, but it's one that I feel like people kind of project on themselves. That they want to believe that that Arnie has this this issue because of a consumerist culture, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, he's in love with his car. That is like the epitome of consumerism has corrupted this young, innocent child, if you think he was innocent. As a sort of counter-argument, it's it's interesting that the consumerism he's consuming is an unpopular car from twenty years ago. Yeah, <laughs> it's not. It's not mainstream consumerist culture. He saw an old, beat up, shitty car and said, "That's mine now."
1: But it, it's when looking at it specifically for a car. I mean, cars arguably started consumerism culture, right? Yeah. Because we were able to create something so quickly and. Something was set as a need, and we do we do start off the film on the line. And and, and the fifties, I mean, looking at the fifties, hugely consumerist culture. That was the time that we saw, you know, all these kitchen gadgets being pushed, all this future neo futurism being pushed onto housewives. And it was the time when people really pinpointed, like, oh, the women are spending them the money, so let's start pushing all these new inventions for the home. Whereas, like the eighties, we also saw this. This focus on unionization as well. So also talking about people in the workplace, specifically in consumerist culture. Malls, heavy consumerism. It's another theme that was heavily focused on in the 80s is basically where I'm going with this.
0: Consumerist culture is not just whatever is mainstream. There are all these different marketing niches and there is a market for people who like older things. Even if we need to talk about Kevin, like he may make fun of consumerism, but he was inspired by fucking Robin Hood to want to learn archery. Do you think Kevin is repentant in the end?
1: In terms of like his answer for why he did it? Yeah. It's an interesting answer. It kind of almost hints at that he is, which I think goes back to the point of view because I feel like that moment is really the one time that it isn't a shady memory. You know, it's... it's. Kevin being Kevin.
0: Yeah, it is present day, so it's not a memory.
1: And it's the first time Kevin talks in present day, really.
0: I mean, it could be a few things. Like, It could be that he is repentant, but only because he's in jail now and jail fucking sucks. He could just be lying for the benefit of his mother because, again, that is a symptom of psychopathy is that you possibly lie. Or it could be that everything we've been shown is that unreliable narrator and- he hasn't always been as horrible as we're made to believe through his mother's memories and trying to make sense of it. Maybe he has had right. more humanity than we've been allowed to see.
1: And that's the one that I'm, I was kind of yeah pointing towards at the end. Yeah. But she also, I mean, in that moment, she also talks about how basically how lucky he is to be a child. And it kind of also says this thing to me of, well, maybe this is also him growing up. And kind of like when he becomes adult, he starts to realize the consequences of his actions, where like the very immature childlike way of viewing things is just doing things in the moment and not knowing or not being able to understand what the consequences are. It's it's a late stage development thing that does happen later on.
0: It's such an interesting movie because we need to talk about Kevin hints at literally every argument that anyone has ever given about why teens kill. All of those, there is an argument to be made for it in a movie. Even violent video games, they make that argument in a movie. And what you focus on is up to you. And I think that what it it ultimately is saying, really, is just that we don't fucking know. Yeah. We don't know. We're not him. We do not know what he's thinking. And we cannot know why he did this.
1: And that's what makes it scary. And that's what makes it a horror movie.
0: Alright, now it's time for Rob's favorite part of the show, the bone <laughs> review section, where we rate each movie on a scale of one to four bones with half bones in between. Starting us host today is Devin Shepard, because Rob always says our full name, so.
1: Oh, he does, doesn't he?
0: What did you think of Christine?
1: I really enjoyed this more than I thought that I would. I was like Stephen King, great. 80s, great. Carpenter, great. What's not to like? But everyone was like, oh, that movie's so boring. It has such slow pacing. I was into it, man. I, I thought it was a very fun movie. I always loved the teen movies from the 80s. It's it's just something I, I love. It was the most, the most Stephen fucking King story, just <laughs> period. It's got bullies. It's got nerds. It's got regrets over things that I did as a child. It has nostalgia for the 1950s and the way things could have been. And like... This, like, hatred towards women uh, that he always has throughout his stuff. The soundtrack was amazing. The car looked really cool. I liked the effects. Everything in the film was very, very simple, but, like, done in a way that works. I actually really loved the writing, and I loved the dialogue. I really did like Keith Gordon's transformative performance. I think it could be read as a little cheesy, But I think his performance specifically brought so much to the character that anyone else portraying him would have made me not like Darnie as much. But I loved what he did with it. I love the fantastical realism. There are some really iconic shots in this film that I think we see throughout all these other movies. And, like, this was the film to make them. So that's always something cool that you have to, like, really respect in in the creative decisions of the director and DP. Yeah, so overall, I want to give Christine let's say 2.5. I know that feels a little low, but yeah, I, even though I loved everything about it, it, it just like, wasn't that like capture oomph movie for me. And I think specifically because we paired it with Kevin, which we'll talk about, I have to give it a, a lower, lower rating than normal. I don't know. Ask me on another day. All right, David, what did you think of?
0: Yeah, I agree with everything you said and I'm so happy that you enjoy it that much. I, And I was watching it, I was like, oh my God, Devin's going to hate this because it's so terrible at portraying (laughs) women. So I was worried you weren't going to like it. But I agree with you. Keith Gordon gives an amazing performance in The Lead. He's actually a director now, he works a lot in TV. So he's uh, actually had a pretty good career, even if you don't know his name. And that that makes me happy to see. The movie itself, it's it's really fucking good. I do agree with some of the pacing problems. I think it's that the movie is too long for how little happens and that i still feel like there are things that are missing that there are chunks where there's just it feels like a scene is skipped somewhere my other big complaint is just the climax i i think the climax is really lame honestly (laughs) i do like that arnie is in the car in the climax and i think that that's so much more interesting than giving him any sort of redemption i like that he is not redeemed but it's just a weird clumsily blocked uh why does dennis suddenly know how to use this
1: what was it called i just looked it up evacuator extractor
0: something like that that stupid truck thing that he drives and he's really good at driving it also why does the cop just believe them in the end? Like, what's their story? they go going to be like, oh, yeah, uh, our friend is dead. We kind of killed him because we didn't realize he was in the living car. Don't worry. We destroyed the living car. That was responsible for everything. And the cop is just like, yeah, okay, that checks out. I love this movie. It's so 80s. Just the image of a burning car chasing after some punk is fucking awesome. It's it's really fun. I I enjoy it a lot. Also, two and a half bones.
1: Hell yeah! Look at us agree.
0: Devin, what'd you think of? We need to talk about Kevin. Devin,
1: let me talk about we need to talk about Kevin by Devin. That <laughs> <laughs> there were so many things. Okay, I, how am I going to say this? Because I feel like so much of my review was already in the episode. Um, so let me talk about specifically the things that we didn't mention throughout the throughout the episode. One. Johnny Greenwood just fucking kills the score. Every single thing that he fucking touches, man. I just always love the score. Fantastic. Two, I want to give a special shout out to the wardrobe in this movie because I loved it. There was one Led Zeppelin t-shirt that we see Franklin wear when they're in New York that we see... Eva where when she is like in a blissful, happy time. And then at one point we see Kevin wear, and that t-shirt tells a fucking story. And I love it. Kevin has on always like the three t-shirts that he wore ever since he was a kid. It makes you question so much about the reality of things, but also tells you about not only Kevin's character, but Eva's character. And then the performances, I, duh, I, it's it's like it's Ezra Miller and, and Tilda Swinton. So I don't think that. And I'm sorry. <laughs> and John C. Riley. I have to give a shout out to fan favorite John C. Riley. Like he's, he's my Wi-Fi name. I love him. I cannot believe he was in this fucking movie.
0: Don't you have a pillow of him?
1: Yes. And we have a pillow of him.
0: You should probably specify what that means before people get the wrong idea.
1: <laughs> I have a pillow with his face on it. Not any other kind of pillow. I don't. Yeah. Okay, we're going to move on from that. Um, (laughs) And then, like we said throughout the rest of the episode, I mean, the power of storytelling in this film done in such a very, very specific way where there are so many different reads of this movie, that is fantastic. And I think Lynn Ramsey does a spectacular job of showing a certain type of woman, a certain type of mother and her experience. I had it at 3.5 bones. I think I'm going to give it four. I I, lo- I really nice. really really loved this film. I think it's powerful storytelling done in the best way possible. David, you've talked about this movie for so many years. Just give me your actual bone rating.
0: <laughs> I'm giving it three point five. It wrecks you. I mean, we we talked about it for quite a while today, but honestly, you could easily keep going. There's I want to talk about ambiguity. Actually, that's that's how I'm going to focus my review. I'm going to be discussing ambiguity. Because I feel like we, we touched on some ambiguity in Christine as well. But I feel like in Christine, a lot of that ambiguity comes from creators having different takes. Whereas in Kevin, the ambiguity is extremely intentional and is making a point. That the movie is so much about the things we cannot know. And we're trying to parse out all these details analyze kevin and analyze eva but but we don't know we can't know and and that's fucking terrifying that's why it's so scary this came out in 2011 like the shooter epidemic was already building it's only gotten worse since then i like can't watch the news like it every news is just telling you about what the new shooting is. I'm like, I'm sure my parents will tell me and I'll be like, I didn't want to know that. <laughs> I, I think bullet wounds are now like the most common cause of death for teens. Or one of the most common. It's really fucked up in the US. That's really fucked up. And there is a conversation about it, but the conversation is it's like what we see in the movie where there are people saying this is a problem, then there are other people saying no this is a problem. The thing you said is not a problem, you're the problem, and we're not getting anywhere. Nothing's being done. Yeah, we can't really know what's going on, but we need to do something. (sighs) Anyway, that got sad. (laughs) Sorry. It is a sad movie that's really hard to watch. Still worth seeing, because it it is so powerful, and it is so real
1: that about wraps us up for this episode do you agree with our reviews what do you think is the reason behind arnie or kevin becoming a murderous teenager let us know we're at cadaver pod on twitter at cadaver podcast on instagram all the links are in the show notes catch you soon mutts peace
0: Ain't no shitters ever got between me and Christine.